The peace of Christ be with you. As we settle into this place, give yourselves about, well, I wouldn't say three deep breaths this morning, maybe three shallow breaths, but slow yourself down enough that your awareness grows that you are held in the spirit and held by this house of prayer. Friends, let us worship the living God. Please rise in body or spirit for the call to worship. Welcome. No matter where you are on your journey or what your experience is of our common journey, we come hoping for a God who will meet us where we are. Here we believe you do not have to hide your true self from the presence of the living God. Let us then come with the confidence of children.
You may be seated. I want to welcome you here to worship today. It is good to be here together. If you're visiting, a special welcome to you. I do invite you after worship to our Christmas fair in Finley Hall, chance to get to know each other better and to support some wonderful nonprofit organizations. And I invite you now to join me in the community prayer. Let us pray. God, though we gather in the beauty of this common space, our lives lead us through all manner of different surroundings and circumstances. We sometimes lose touch with you in the realities of our everyday lives. When we feel far from you, do not simply call us back. Please come and find us. Give us for when we cause harm in thought and word, in deed or neglect. Restore your creation and help us start again. Our prayers continue in quiet. Amen. Friends, take heart, for God offers us forgiveness and gives us new life. May we be restored knowing that God loves us without limit. Thanks be to God. Amen. Now I'd like to invite any of the children who are worshiping with us to join me here at the front. Good morning. Come on. Hello. Hello, hello. So, I realize it's November, and it probably maybe seems a little early to start thinking about Christmas, though maybe not. Um, so, I'm curious if you would just think for just a moment, think about some Christmases past, and think about some of the gifts that you have given to people for Christmas. I think giving gifts is kind of fun. It shows that we care about someone, shows our love for them. Now, there are lots of ways to show that, but that's one way. So you've got in your mind some gifts that you've given. I'm going to see maybe if I can guess some of the gifts maybe you've given to other people. I'm curious, have you ever given school supplies as a Christmas gift? You know, maybe some pencils, maybe some binder paper. No, maybe? No? Okay. Um, I know, I know. I'm sure you have given some kitchen utensils, like some spoons maybe, maybe a spatula, a, a mug. Yeah, that would count. Sure, sure, sure. Or how about some socks? Have you ever given anyone socks? Yes, yes. Okay, some socks, definitely. I gave socks to my son a couple years ago and got the big thumbs down. It's like... He thought that was the most boring Christmas present I'd ever given him was some socks. So this year, he's out there somewhere. Hey, guess what, Ben? I'm getting socks for, for you again. Except, even better, you don't get the socks. <laughs> so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to our Christmas fair after worship. It's in our Finley Hall back there, and there's all kinds of tables set up for all kinds of different organizations that exist basically to help and support people. And one of those tables is selling socks. 
But here's where it gets a little confusing. I don't actually get the socks. My son doesn't actually get the socks. Instead, I'm going to go up to the person at that table and say, I want to buy some socks, and I want to donate them to someone who's been affected by the fire up north of us. And I want to make sure someone who had to evacuate their house really fast and maybe lost their things can have some warm socks because it's cold and the winter's coming. And so Ben doesn't get the socks, but someone who really needs them, who maybe has no more socks, gets them. And then when I'm going to tell Ben on Christmas Day, when he opens his nice little card for me, I'm going to say, in your honor, I bought someone socks who really needed them. And I think it's a win-win because someone who needs socks gets them and Ben doesn't have to deal with more socks that he doesn't really want. So it's kind of confusing, right? You're buying a gift in honor of someone, but someone else gets it. It's a little confusing, but I tell you what, it's a really neat way to help people out at Christmas, people who might be in need of our extra support. So after Sunday school, after worship, I encourage you to go into Finlay Hall. There's all kinds of interesting and creative things you can buy in order to really help people out, all right? So now if you are in... If you are in second grade or younger, I see Adrian right there. She's, wait, don't leave yet. She's going to lead you out to the preschool building. If you're in third through fifth grade, Livy's right there. She's going to lead you to your class, and they're leaving already. Go now in peace. Go now in peace. May the love of God surround you everywhere, everywhere you I guess it's a good thing that they're so excited to go to Sunday school. I'm not going to think that they're so excited to get away from me, but to go to Sunday school. So as we uh, share with each other our joys and concerns as we pray with and for each other and our greater communities, I have a few joys and concerns I want to share with you, and then I will invite you to share as well. I actually have several. Certainly, as I mentioned, we keep uh, those affected by the fires, not only those here in Northern California, also those in Southern California, those who have lost their lives, those who have lost their homes and businesses, those firefighters and first responders. Um, I know several people are wondering how to help. Right now, the best thing to do is to donate. As I mentioned, one of the tables at our Christmas fair, Presbyterian Disaster Assistance, will be giving money um, to help those affected by the fires. A um, couple of good news updates. We've been praying for our youth director, Jeff Shankel, who had kidney surgery last week. The surgery went really well. He's recovering. In fact, he's here today. I don't know what his doctor thinks about that, um, but he's, he's doing well, um, and you can certainly greet him at the Christmas fair after worship. Um, and then a big congratulations to Brooke Scott, a Westminster member who has uh, graduated from seminary, has been working her way through the ordination process in the Presbyterian Church. Last Thursday, she had sort of a major step in that ordination process with the Committee on Preparation for Ministry, and they sort of voted her through with flying colors. So she is moving ever so closely to ordination. So, Brooke, congratulations. And our, our prayers certainly continue with you on the journey. Um, and then certainly we recognize that today is uh, the 100th anniversary of the war that was to end all wars. It's also Veterans Day. And certainly as we remember all those who have been affected by war, we also remember the violence and the destruction of war. We pray for God's peace 
in our world, God's peace in our hearts. Um, and then last, especially for you and the choir, we remember the friends and family of Michael Peterson. He died last week following a journey with cancer. So our prayers are with you all who certainly knew and loved Michael and with many of you who also were friends with Michael. So how about you all? How, what joys and concerns do you have to share today? Susan. Absolutely. So welcome to Fernando from Canal Alliance. I think we had, oh gosh, sorry. I think we had a couple of special guests here for the Christmas fair. So check it out. You know, there are people here to give us information about what these great organizations are doing. Thank you. There's, yeah, Mimi. Yeah, so prayer for your son, you said, who lives in Chico. He's doing okay right now, but knows many people who have had to evacuate and who have lost their homes. Absolutely. Anyone else? Why do I keep doing that? Peter, yes. Mm. A college friend of Evelyn's who has been struggling with pancreatic cancer who just entered hospice. Yeah, Carol. Amen. Thank you, Carol. So our Congregational Life Commission for the last month or so has been sponsoring small group dinners. I think many of you have attended. And Carol was simply giving thanks for those dinners, for the chance to get to know each other better, and giving thanks for this congregation. Thank you. Kyle? Oh, excellent. Joy of nieces coming for Thanksgiving. Absolutely. And Kelly, did you have one? Prayers for a friend's daughter struggling with alcoholism. Yeah. Let's take a few moments in quiet, and then I'll lead us in the Lord's Prayer. So let's be in prayer together. Loving God, hear our prayers for all who strive for peace, for all who yearn for justice, especially today as we remember the cost of war. Help us to work for a better tomorrow. 
As we honor the past, may we put our faith in your future of healing, of grace, of love, and of peace. And hear us now as together we pray the prayer Jesus taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, Today's readings are both from the book of Ruth. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to us. I'll be reading from the third chapter of Ruth, the first five verses. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, I need to seek some security for you so that it may be well with you. Now here is her kinsman, Boaz, with whose young women you have been working. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now wash and anoint yourself and put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. She said to her, All that you tell me, I will do. And picking up in chapter 4, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. 
When they came together, the Lord made her conceive, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without next of kin, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. Nearly two centuries ago, a woman picked up her life in her native Virginia and moved to the Midwest. Unsure of what she'd find and uncertain about what she had left behind, she wrote a letter that began with the sentence, Goodbye, God, I'm moving to Indiana. Now, to a native Hoosier, that literally hits close to home. <laughs> the woman was fearing that she was leaving this place of faithful practice and piety in the South and heading to the godless frontier of the Midwest. Who can blame her? She was wrong, by the way. Uh, if you're interested in these kinds of things, church attendance was and remains to this day higher in the Midwest than it is in the American South. They just don't brag about it. But how would such a woman in such a day and age know that? Didn't have access to that kind of information or, or certainly not the broader perspective of what faithfulness could look like even outside her tradition. Her story, while amusing, makes me think on a more serious level of all the journeys people have had to make often against their will on some form, in some form or another having been displaced literally or figuratively, and the courage and grit and creativity they've had to use to find their way. Particularly, perhaps, women. We shouldn't ignore the gender dynamic of the story we heard in today's scripture passage because so often the Bible skews masculine and patriarchal. Today, it is unapologetically and clearly, overtly, a story about women and how they find their way in the world. Ruth, the central figure, is probably most well-known for something that happens earlier in Ruth, something that you heard about last week if you were here in worship. She's known for her unwavering loyalty to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Naomi's husband has died, and her only two sons have died. That's significant on a couple of levels. The first is obvious, the level of grief and sadness, that kind of tragedy. But secondly, there is another level on which it's important to recognize the magnitude of that loss. In that day and age, a woman's well-being was dependent almost entirely on her connection to her men, her material and financial well-being, her actual safety was wound up 
in that. And now Naomi has lost every man in her life. And she is no longer safe or secure. This, incidentally, is why I think Jesus is against divorce. It's not for all the reasons we think. It's because it leaves someone vulnerable in his time period. Naomi deems that she is too old to find another husband. And her own family has all died, and so she has nothing and thinks there is no hope for her. But for her two daughters-in-law, there is still a chance. They can still return to their homeland. Remember, they're in a foreign land. They can return to their homeland, to their families of origin, and have a chance to start again. And so she urges them to leave her behind and go. And one says yes, understandably, and Ruth refuses. Saying, now, famously, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. It's a bold and risky statement. An incredible act of selfless solidarity. It's the kind of story that's been told and lived out time and again, particularly for the women of this world. In the episode that you heard today, Naomi is still looking out for the safety and security of her daughter-in-law. That's literally the word she uses. I need to seek out some security for you, Ruth. And so she hatches a plan to find her a husband because that's the route to security for her. And the episode plays out in illusion and euphemism. You could miss it if you're not reading carefully. Naomi sends Ruth down to the threshing floor to be with a man named Boaz. And she says, now wait until he's had enough to eat and more importantly, enough to drink and find him when he's sleeping and lie by his side and uncover his feet. If you're wondering if that means what you think it means, it means what you think it means. <laughs> she, in essence, says, put on some perfume, make yourself look nice, and make yourself known to him, known in the biblical sense. And so she does. Now, in the era of Me Too, when we're trying to get at least a little bit better understanding of the dynamics of sexual abuse and misconduct and consent or lack thereof and power and the stories of women and some men, fewer but some, this story is fraught with landmines. <laughs> we have to be careful as we remember it, and it's an important story to remember, but we, we have to be careful as we remember it not to inadvertently send the wrong message and to preach something that only puts people in more and more danger. So even as we can honor the creativity and the sacrifice and the persistence of these women to do what they had to do to protect themselves, we can simultaneously lament about the world that makes it so they have to do those things. We can weep as we imagine Naomi saying to Ruth, this is, 
This is what you have to do. And we can ache as we see Ruth make her way down to the threshing floor to do it. And we can even under what, uh, wonder what it must have been like for Boaz to be a part of that. And so the fact that he turned out to be a decent man and they had a good family and everybody was safe is almost beside the point. The story is still problematic and it's still painful even though it turns out beautifully. Because women were just doing what they had to do and the manner in which women often have to do it in secret under the cover of the darkness of night in hiding. It's a repeated theme I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Jewish festival of Purim. Purim uh, celebrates an episode that took place in the book of Esther, another feminine book in the Bible. And Esther is the hero who, in a crafty way, brings uh, Haman, a villain, to his demise. And so she's celebrated at Purim. And if you go to a Purim party, one of the things that's served are these cookies And the cookies are said to resemble the ear of Haman, the villain of the story. That's one of the stories. The other story says that the cookie looks like a different part of the body. And it's not the ear, and it's not a part you'll find on any man. It becomes a secret honoring of the sacred feminine passed down from generation to generation the way women have often have had to pass things down under the radar, under the shroud of darkness in symbolism because when the feminine rises up too much, the patriarchy wants to push it down or aside or wipe it away. It was just this Halloween when a mother was explaining to her child where witches came from. He was confused. Why are they scary? Why are we to be afraid of them? And she explained to him that, well, There was a time when women of the spirit who were able to access these sort of spiritual gifts were a threat to men in the systems that kept them in charge. And so they had to concoct stories about them so that people would be afraid of them so that they could be wiped off, wiped away. That's a good mother. The feminine has often had to make its way undercover to fear for its life, to run, and to do unspeakable things in order to survive. And yet survive, it does, time and again. John Philip Newell, who I've quoted here many a time, tells a wonderful story about working with a group of nuns who are living in community and forced to live in a system that doesn't allow them the same access to certain kinds of leadership that the men are allowed to have. But they love their tradition, so they don't want to leave it. They want to stay within it, and yet they want to have integrity in the fullness of life. And so they're clever and creative. And they have a way of getting priests sent to them to perform the Mass who have limitations, we'll say. So they'll they'll get a priest who has a nice speaking voice, but an awful case of the shakes. And so when it comes time for the Eucharist, he can't hold the chalice. And so who's there to perform the embodied parts of the Mass celebration but the women? They say, oh, poor Father so-and-so. He's got a wonderful voice, but he can't hold the chalice. And so we sisters stand up and we perform the Mass for him. And then they get another priest and they say, oh, he's strong and sturdy, but oh, poor Father so-and-so, he can't speak. 
So when it comes time to perform the Eucharist, we sisters have to get up and say the words for him. Subverting the system from within, finding a way to get by and to survive creatively the best way they can. Now, you can be angry that women have to go to such lengths to do that. You can dislike the story of Ruth altogether for what it seems to say she has to go through. I'm not here to change your mind about any of that. I will say that you should be careful how you read the Bible. It's not as so we so often send the message, just a series of simple stories with clear moral exemplars that we just have to follow. No, the Bible is a complex library of stories and poems and letters and prayers and myth and history all pointing to people a lot like us who struggle, who stumble, who fall, who get up, who fail, and who triumph, all attempting to walk imperfectly in the light of their God. And it's from all those aspects of their life that we can learn how to stumble and struggle and fail and triumph through ours as we walk in our God's light. The one thing I'll ask of you is that you don't blame this story on the Old Testament. The oldest heresy in the Christian church is to separate the Old and the New Testaments, one being bad and one good, and as if it's two different gods. Don't buy that. Whenever anybody says something like that to me, I say the same thing. The Old Testament is full of a lot more mercy than you're noticing, and the Newer Testament is full of a lot more wrath than you'd like to admit. If you don't believe me, read Matthew 25 and then come talk to me. It's all there. In fact, the Older Testament may even be better at revealing the grittiness and the messiness and the ugliness and the painfulness of life because it's written from the bottom up, New Testament more from the top down. So stories like Ruth and Naomi are very real because they're stories that many people here and out there have experienced. These two women find a way in a very cruel world to survive and to live. And notice one really important thing. God doesn't judge them for what they do to take care of their families. God doesn't judge them. In fact, God does the opposite in the story. They are blessed. In that worldview, having a child, having a son was a sign of ultimate blessing. And so watch what comes from this union. Who comes from it? Do you remember the lineage? And Boaz was the father of Obed. And Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David. And if you know anything about the New Testament, you'll know how, what great lengths it goes to to prove to you that Jesus comes from the house of David. Jesus was conceived on that threshing floor, you could say. God does not judge Ruth for what she does, but her era would have, and ours probably would too, as we still tend towards slut-shaming women. Forgive me for using that term in church, but my using it is far kinder than 
the reality to which it points as we hold women and men to such vastly different sexual standards in culture. The one who results from that coming together is the one that we call Christ, Christ whose fundamental teaching may have been do not judge. Do not judge what people do in order to get by and take care of their families. They're doing the best they can. You may not know their story, but they have one. Do not judge. And we would do well to be kind as we consider those in the world doing what they have to do to take care of their loved ones. Pope Francis in a TED Talk. I didn't think I'd ever say Pope and TED Talk in the same sentence. Put it this way. He said, in order to be good, we need memory. We need courage and we need creativity. Yes, love does require a creative, concrete, and ingenious attitude. Those sound to me like the attitudes of Ruth and Naomi. Good intentions and conventional formulas, so often used to appease our conscience, are not enough. Not good enough just to follow conventional wisdom. Richard Rohr says that's what killed Jesus, just following the rules. Let us help each other all together to remember that the other is not a statistic or a number. The other has a face. The you is always a real presence, a person to take care of. I love that last line because usually when Christians are talking about real presence, they're in this debate about whether Christ is really present in the communion elements or not. But Jesus, excuse me, Pope Francis, here is more concerned with the real presence of the divine in the other person. And tending to that. It's interesting because these days there's all this talk about the importance of the rule of law, which I honor and appreciate those so committed to that. And yet we should remember that when the law did not protect people, when the law was not compassionate to those who were in need, Jesus broke the law. In doing so, he fulfilled it, but he disregarded it, willing to pay the price for it. And to be a Christian is not to follow the law at all costs. To be a Christian is to follow Jesus at all costs. To recognize the real presence of the other and to take care of them. To find a way in the world when it's not easy to do so, when it's not safe to do so. And it comes down to whether or not we will be determined to see others' stories as grotesque and reasons for judgment, or if we will honor the fullness of their stories in the difficult situations that force them to make unthinkable decisions. The author Steve Almond tells a story about being on public radio, and he's talking about the great American novel, The Grapes of Wrath. That story about migrant farmers making their way west and the ecological devastation of the Dust Bowl. And after the segment, he received a number of responses, and one particularly stuck with him. 
it was about someone who acknowledged the, the, that that was a real classic in literature. But he couldn't get over the end of it, which he found disgusting. If you don't remember the end of Grapes of Wrath, the family has made their way west to cleaner air. And they find themselves in a barn where a woman named Rose of Sharon gives birth to a stillborn babe. Yes, stillborn babe in a barn. That's the symbolism you're going for. But also there in the barn as she lies there in her grief is an emaciated man who is starving to death. And she goes to unusual lengths to save him. And I might say to save herself. Well, this is how the grapes of wrath ends. Then slowly she lay down beside him. He shook his head slowly from side to hot side. Rose of Sharon loosened one side of the blanket and bared her breast. You got to, she said. She squirmed closer and pulled his head close. There, she said there. Her hand moved behind his head and supported it. Her finger moved gently in his hair. She looked up and across the barn, and her lips came together and smiled mysteriously. The questioner asked Almond, what was she doing smiling? Wasn't it creepy enough that she was breastfeeding a grown man? Ullman reflected, I wanted to tell him he was missing the point of the story. The point of the story was that the man was starving to death. The point of the story was that she was saving his life. Naomi nurses her grandchild. Rose of Sharon nurses a stranger, a peer, an adult man. Here are two people in the pit of desperation literally nursing those back to life. Two people, two women on the threshing floor finding a way. The way we choose to hear and tell their stories will say everything about the kind of people we are. Amen.
You may be seated. And at this time, I would like to invite forward Ron Meserve, who is the chairperson of our renovation committee. Now, my wife actually thought this was a really good match, the hard hat and the hard head. <laughs> she was sitting out there this morning in the earlier service, and gentlemen, you know what I'm going to say, the look, <laughs> the look that I got. <laughs> I'll be hearing more about that when I get home, I'm sure. Anyway, this is a very exciting time in our church, in our, our uh, community. Um, we just completed a very successful, amazingly successful campaign, um, capital campaign, and it was really an awesome experience, and we're so grateful for that. Now we are starting the process of realizing the dream and the vision that we have for the expansion and the improvement uh, of our facilities. Uh, a little bit about the status. Uh, we have an incredibly talented renovation committee uh, working on this. We have two architects, two engineers, one interior designer, one project manager, one project accountant, one CPA, and two former CEOs on this committee. Believe that. We have engaged an arch architect, and we are currently in the process of interviewing contractors and uh, seeking out the uh, references, in, uh, talking with the references. That's a really exciting process, by the way. Um, the session and the uh, committee, by the way, are extremely committed to transparency and communication. And there are a number of things that we're going to be doing to make sure the congregation is uh, fully informed. We're going to have town hall sessions on December 2nd and December 9th, probably here in the uh, congregation, um, to give it an opportunity for you to hear the updates and to ask questions. There's a bulletin board being established uh, in the back of the room outside Findlay Hall, and that's going to be providing information and pictures and graphs and stuff for both the uh, capital campaign and the renovation. Um, in uh, December 16th, we're going to have a congregation meeting. Many of you have already received your letters about this, I'm sure. The congregation meeting is going to be an opportunity for us to uh, get your approval to file uh, an application for a line of credit with a synod. This line of credit is necessary because we have a two-year process of construction, and we have three years during which we'll be receiving uh, your pledges. And so that cash flow is necessary to be covered uh, through that line of credit. Also, we'll be doing, uh, throughout the period of construction, we'll be doing uh, periodic uh, Q&A opportunities for you, too. Looking forward, there are going to be several months of planned development, um, permitting, and contracting. Many of you are aware of that process. We'll start construction uh, probably no earlier than June or July of next year. Uh, and we'll uh, experience 10 to 12 months of construction, God willing. <laughs> um, watch for me or members of the Re Renovation Committee who might be wearing this hard hat various times for the next few months uh, throughout the process, actually, and uh, pull us aside and ask us questions or give us comments. We thank God for the blessing that has so recently been given to us. Thank you. Thank you, Ron.
I think Ron has realized that chairing this committee is kind of like having a full-time job. So thank you for all of the work that you've put into this. It doesn't pay as well. True. Um, I have just a couple of other announcements to offer to you today. Um, in addition to our Christmas fair, during the Christmas season, we're going to be working with the Ritter Center to provide toys for children and teenagers who may not otherwise receive any gifts um, at Christmas time. So as you're perusing the Christmas fair in Finley Hall, you'll notice on the stage there's a small Christmas tree. There are tags on that tree with the name of children and their age. If you want to grab a tag and go shopping in the next month um, and then return your unwrapped gift to the Ritter Center barrels, that certainly uh, would be uh, enjoyed by the Ritter House and by the children who will receive those gifts. And we certainly don't want to skip over Thanksgiving. On Thanksgiving Day, we'll be providing meal for the residents at Voyager Carmel. Um, we would love your help either in providing some food that you can cook in advance for Thanksgiving Day. We also need some people to help serve on Thanksgiving Day. Voyager Carmel is in downtown San Rafael. Randy Heiser is leading this effort, and he'll be out in the narthex by his big sign-up board. So if you're interested in helping for the Thanksgiving meal, just see Randy right outside the sanctuary. And now I invite you as you are comfortable to stand for our closing hymn. It's number 837. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God who is father and mother of us all, and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be with you this day, be with you every day. Amen. Amen.